We're back to talk about robots again and artificial intelligence. And this time we're diving right into the Terminator trope, you know, robo weapons. There's nothing new about the idea of autonomous weapons. In fact, the idea dates back to the ancient Greek legends. What is new, and it's a distinction with a very significant difference, what is new are the recent step function advances in robotics in the related fields of artificial intelligence. So to explore this fascinating, important, beyond obviously important, and sometimes frightening topic, I'm delighted to have Don Howard join us. Don is at Notre Dame, where he's a professor of philosophy, specializing in the philosophy of physics. And you all know physics happens to be a particular love of mine, since it was where I got my degree. He's also, amongst many other impressive things, a co-director of a center on the ethics of emerging technologies, a project that I was also involved in some years back and where I first had the pleasure of meeting Don. The topic in this episode is at the epicenter of much of what Don studies and teaches. So, Don, we're going to talk about uh, stuff that you and I like to talk about. You spent a lot of time in your life doing serious study. I'm a dilettante and do what I think is serious study, but I don't have the fun you have in the uh, in the research institutions to really dig deep. So here we are, since we last talked, lots more news and hype, as you know, about chat GPT and artificial intelligence. Uh, this is sort of reanimated. Uh, pun intended, uh, the uh, worries, dystopian worries about uh, machines taking over, and in particular, taking over ethical decisions. And setting aside, which we'll get to, the, the war fighting, the questions about the role of software, computers, robots making decisions that have ethical consequences in healthcare, you know, operating equipment to save people, driving, driving a car for us instead of us driving or operating a safety system. Uh, these are not new problems or new questions or new issues, but they really, I think are proper. I think it's reasonable to say they're properly animated at the point where it's clear that we've made enough progress for smart machines to be smarter, that they can begin to do useful things. I've, you and I've talked about this. I've long said the biggest problem with computers and robots is they're not good enough yet. We yep. can't talk to them semantically and have them be context aware and do useful things. They're just really stupid, do repetitive tasks. They're still really stupid, but they're a lot smarter. So we're not on this cusp. Everybody's at, everybody's an animated. So we're going to talk about that in the context of war fighting today because of an article you wrote. But first, tell, tell people who don't know you and catch me up on sort of some of the projects that you're involved in, what you're doing at Notre Dame. Because, you know, unlike me, you're not famous. No, I'm kidding. Unlike you, I'm not famous. Anyway, tell tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit about what, you're, what you do as a philosopher at Notre Dame, because this whole notion of uh, weapons ethics and robot ethics is deeply important and deeply fascinating. And that's, that's your, that's your, uh, that's your domain. So give us, give us the snapshot of what, what you do and engage in and why this animates you. Well, sure, Mark. Uh, so for most of my career uh, in philosophy, I focused on the historical and philosophical foundations of physics. And that's still 
the topic that uh, I'm most interested in, do a lot of work in that uh, space. But if I can address the question biographically or autobiographically, back when I was in graduate school in the 1970s, I already had a serious interest in technology ethics. And I actually had the thought that I would go on the job market with two specializations, philosophy of physics and technology ethics. And I had job talks worked up on both areas. And the first time I gave a job talk on technology ethics, uh, I remember it vividly. It was at the University of New Hampshire. Uh, it was a complete dud. Uh, <laughs> people thought that the issue weren't important or interesting. It's that they just didn't understand that this should be, could be something in a philosopher's wheelhouse. They just didn't have a place on the, 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 the map of serious issues in philosophy. So for decades, I let that interest sort of simmer. I cultivated it regularly in the classroom, but it wasn't part of my research portfolio until I got the opportunity uh, back in the early teens to take a turn directing Notre Dame's Riley Center for Science, Technology, and Values. And it's through that, of course, that you and I first uh, met one and uh, met yep. one another. Yeah. Uh, with you as a member of our advisory, uh, yeah, it's great, great fun. I love, I love the whole idea. That was deeply attractive. We have to come back to later how to reanimate that as a center of practice, not just at Notre Dame, but more broadly. Uh, happy to talk about. It. Actually, there's a lot of encouraging news to share on that front, Mark. Uh, but uh, I realized that uh, taking a turn as director of uh, the Riley Center was an opportunity for me to revisit that old interest in technology ethics uh, now in a really serious way. And uh, I started uh, to do a lot of work on a lot of different topics, started building a lot of new classes uh, in the technology ethics space, starting in uh, 2014 with a, uh, an online course on robot ethics. I have since uh, developed or co-developed uh, a course on the ethics of responsible technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship uh, at the request of the leadership of Notre Dame's Silicon Valley uh, campus. Uh, I've developed and I'm regularly teaching a course on data ethics for a new NSF-funded undergraduate uh, data uh, science program here at Notre Dame. When it comes to my research and uh, writing, uh, I've looked at a number of different uh, topics. Uh, one that I am uh, had a lot of fun with, also back in 2014, that was a kind of a turning point in the evolution of my interests in these topics. Uh, I co-authored uh, that year with my former Notre Dame roboticist colleague, Oral Reek, the first ever code of ethics for the human-robot interactions uh, community. Uh, and uh, what a hit that was. Uh, the time was right. That yep. person really needed to hear that. Uh, and we got such amazing uptake uh, uh, for that. Uh, uh, more recently, what have I written on? Uh, a couple of years ago, I published a paper uh, that I'm really happy about on green nuclear energy. Yep. Uh, and uh, you and I have talked about energy issues yep. for a long, long uh, time. And then most recently, my latest paper in this space, you alluded to this a moment ago, uh, is a paper uh, titled In Defense of Virtuous Autonomous Weapons. I know. Yet again, I try to be 
provocative as I can be. Too often I fail utterly in my uh, provocations. Uh, but this one has gotten some uptake. Uh, it, it should have been subtitled in praise of Terminator. Uh, but precisely you, not, Mark. Precisely I know. Not. I know. <laughs> because one of the messages is when too too many people when they think about this, yeah. their minds run immediately to these apocalyptic exactly Terminator Skynet scenarios. Exactly, which are nothing but science fiction, and they have no bearing on the reality of the world we're going to be living in uh, in the future. In the future. Oh, exactly. Which you know, one of the things. Um, there's so much to talk about. One of the things you and I have talked about, which I think is extraordinarily important in the thinking about technology and science and ethics and how it relates to people, is the inability for a lot of people, including very serious scientists and engineers, to understand the, where, where the gray zone and the bright line is between the art of the possible and the art of, of impossible, the, and the uh, ideas that are inherently impossible. And, you know, one uses analogies and metaphors to try to illustrate that. I usually use ham-handed ones. And people, it was like the, the dawn of the invention of the aircraft. Everybody knew it was a big deal. They weren't stupid. They, they knew it mattered for commerce, transportation, for war fighting. But if someone talked about flying an airplane to the moon, you could say to them, it's impossible because there's no air in space. It does, they don't work in space. They need air. That's why it's called an airplane and that's true of robots, and it's true of chemistry, it's true of biology, all kinds of things where you enter crossover bright lines. The gray, there's gray zones around bright lines, but the, the gray zones are pretty narrow. But but you so you you raise um and maybe it's something we should talk about that's relevant to the to uh, war fighting and robots. The code of ethics concept, uh, and you and I talked about this a decade ago as well. And you're thinking about right now is particularly timely. It was timely when you started, but it's really timely now. All this hype about stopping AI research because it's apocalyptic. It's being analogized to atomic weapons. This kind of really silly analogies. Correct, I guess, in the simple sense that when new things come along, you have to think hard about what to do, how to manage the ethical consequences. But the underlying... Uh, feature that's missing from software developers and code code writers, engineers in this field broadly, maybe arguably because it hasn't mattered until now, is there's nothing equivalent to the what I put simplistically in a paper years ago, to the Hippocratic Oath. They don't we don't teach coders. Let's say, let's use AI coders. People are writing code that interfaces with humans. I don't care if the code draws a picture that has no capacity to make a decision, let's say, that affects my health. So code that can read x-ray films that would tell me whether I might have a disease or not that's advising a doctor, whether you get that right or wrong in advising a doctor, even if there's a human involved, you're now entering into that ethical realm where the, how good a job I do has human consequence. Me as a code writer, we aren't teaching by and large, correct me if I'm wrong, the equivalent of a code of ethics you know, Hippocratic oath to coders who do that kind of work. Uh, that is miss. That is, if there's a solution that you would think most people could agree to, whether it's for a weapon or to read an X-ray, a CAT scan, surely that is beyond obvious. We should do that. But you, you pioneered this thinking question. First, tell me if I'm wrong. That's beyond obvious. We should do it. But how is it being better received? not just in Silicon Valley, but especially the 
employers are the ones that have the power to say to the universities, we're looking for that kind of certification. We're looking for courses when we hire people where the student has the equivalent of a Hippocratic oath taught to them. Is that is that pie in the sky dreaming on my part? Could that happen? No, it's not pie in the sky dreaming, Mark. And I said a moment ago, I've got good news to share with you. I'm and ready. Good news is that within the past, oh, I don't know, six or seven years, uh, we've reached an inflection point, I think, in the uh, in the appreciation of the importance of taking the ethics uh, seriously. So let me give you a couple of anecdotes. I mentioned earlier this course we built for our Silicon Valley program on the ethics of responsible technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. When we built that course, we spent a lot of time uh, with Notre Dame's Office of Digital Learning doing a lot of video and audio interviews uh, with people in Silicon Valley. And my co-developer and I were really caught off guard by how many, especially younger people, you know, CEOs of startups and so forth, uh, especially younger people who just, they got it. Yeah. Uh, where they were putting together business models for their new companies, where as they were proud to show us, they were baking in an engagement with ethics uh, right from the very uh, from the very beginning. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, you're the last optimist. I'm the beginning, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I was totally caught off guard uh, uh, by that. But that sense that we got uh, when we were building that course has been vindicated over and over and over again in the years, uh, the years uh, since. Uh, another manifestation of this is Notre Dame was really ahead of the pack 10 years ago in trying to build out competence in technology ethics uh, 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 as a, a part of the curriculum, as a part of the research that we do here. Uh, we've made great strides here at Notre Dame, and I might need to catch you up on some of these strides uh, uh, in this space. So we were doing this in the uh, under the aegis of the Riley Center for Science, right. Technology, and Values right. back then. Yeah. We have now spun off a totally new center as of four years ago called the Notre Dame Center uh, Technology Ethics. Uh, we're doing this in partnership with IBM, and I'd be happy to cycle back and talk about how interesting that partnership has proved huh. to be. But this has been a huge, huge success. We're hiring up to something like 15 new faculty to be wow. with this uh, with this center. Uh, Notre Dame is investing massively uh, in this. Uh, we are building more and more courses in this space. And another surprise for all of us who've been doing this is no matter how many new seats we create in new courses, we cannot satisfy student demand for seats mm. in these courses. So something about our students has changed. They've gotten it. People who are doing business majors, engineering majors, people are going to be having careers in the tech sector. Right, They've right. just found their way on their own to the importance of these ethical questions and are so you you've just vindicated my my role as the last optimist, because <laughs> because when we first started talking about this, we were I'll confess to sharing your cynicism about the capacity, particularly of you know go fast, break everything, let's make money, Silicon Valley ethos in the early days, which 
it's not totally unique, as you know, in the history of technology. If you go to the beginning of aviation, the beginning of steam boilers, if we get all the tech, there's very early phases where people are so excited by the new technology. They just put the pedal of the metal, build stuff until you get the oops moments eventually in different forms. You know, in boiler in the boiler uh, makers days, it was they were killing a lot of people, literally, as you know, hundreds of people died over a period of a few years from boiler explosions, both in buildings and waterways and we got end up with boiler standards the safety standards now driven by the industry again it was they 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 did it not the government of course they were worried about the government inter interfering uh in the technology but this is this is very exciting because if one can in seeing a, the young generation which is the generation that will use the new tools the new tools in my view, are still nascent. We are at the sort of the end of the beginning of really useful software, things that people are, you know, fascinated by the parlor tricks that are being done now with chat GPT. They're, most of them are parlor tricks. Some of them are really useful, right? But a lot of the parlor tricks, but it's okay. I mean, the barnstorming of America by Lindbergh to show that airplanes worked was clearly a predicate to having airplanes that really work and carry a lot of people inexpensively. But you did, most people do not want to fly in airplanes like that, except for fun and, you know, war fighting and at that time. So this, this is, this is extraordinarily uh, exciting because I, if we, if one can, in fact, especially in America, and I don't mean this to be jingoistic because the United States still is the epicenter of a lot of these technologies. Everybody's involved globally, but this is the Silicon Valley is still the, the cradle of a awful lot of this. If that community embraces and in fact the the generation the rising generation demands this, it's not perfect, but it's it's a giant step towards not just making the technology useful because be useful it needs to be ethical. I mean it's a priori people people are in, I I mean this is my optimism. People are inherently ethical beings. We have a lot of bad people in the world, but people. You know, human beings are social animals. Social animals brings with it an ethics component. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm delighted to hear that. I've been, I've been AWOL on these debates, as you know, because I've been occupied by arguing against other forms of insanity going on, going on in terms of the energy space. But uh, this is good. So let's let's bring this. Um, th this is really good for chat and AI, in, insofar as its application to things that people are worried about. But I want to bring it to the provocative article you wrote, and I'll put the link to your article at the posting of the podcast. You, you know, Don and I, uh, to our listeners, know, uh, don't know this. So, so we've co-authored stuff before. I, I wanna co-author some stuff in the future, especially on this with Don, but we, we wrote a back-to-back -back article in a really nice magazine called the Dakota Digital Review, coming out of um, the, the, great, the great heartland of the country, Mutual friend of ours is the editor, you know, Pat, Pat McCloskey. And I wrote a piece about the idea that robots are finally becoming useful enough to do industrial tasks. And because technically they are, we're on the cusp. We can see robots that can carry stuff and walk, work beside people. Now, collaterally, that also means they can do something else. They can also do things that fall in the industrial domain, which is war fighting. War fighting is sort of a, a grotesque industrial task, but that's what you know humans have been fighting wars for a long time. So I Don wrote a piece, I'm telling my the listeners a really provocative, you know, in the in defense, I'll repeat the title, in defense of virtuous autonomous weapons. And I'm going to read a paragraph 
so our listeners will be tantalized because it's a delicious, it's a delicious article. Everyone should read this. But in, in the and I know why you did this. You buried your lead as your last and towards the end. And sometimes we deliberately bury our leads for reasons of architecture of a piece. So I'm going to read the last second last paragraph because it's the lead. And it because in people's heads, when when you say in defense of virtuous autonomous weapons, this gets to the science fiction terminator goofy stuff. But you wrote. And I'm quoting, war is hell. And a, a, a classic line. So war is hell. It has always been an inherently immoral form of human activity. The goal of international law is to minimize the otherwise inevitable death and suffering that war entails. Advances in technology can contribute toward that goal by making weapons more accurate, less lethal, and more selective. The advent of autonomous weapons promises still further moral gains by removing the single most common cause of war crimes, the too often morally incapacitated human combatant, end quote. It, you know, I really think this piece is a tour de force, you know, uh, in, every, in all kinds of ways because of its cautious lucidity approach to one of the most dangerous things that humans engage in, which is war fighting, whether intentional or unintentional. And, the ethical component of that, how do, when you are when one is forced to defend oneself, when one's forced into war, so this is the premise that matters because we're we're not talking about war fighting as an aggressor, but when we're forced into it, what do you do? What's the most? What's the? This is a very old argument in theology, as you know, in philosophy, but it's practical in international law. So I, I, this formulation was terrific. So. With that as the intro, what I want, what I wanted you to do is to uh, sort of frame, sort of summarize for the listeners how you framed the defense, because this, you know, the Pandora's box has been unlocked. We can make autonomous weapons. We've been doing it for a while. You know, fire and forget weapons have been around. They're just not that smart, but they're smart enough. The so-called smart. I worked on smart weapons, as you know, early in my career. The Hellfire, and I built. The, guidance detectors for, you know, Sparrow and Sidewinder missiles that are smart as opposed to just, you know, howitzer shells that you aim and forget. If fire and forget was because you can, you can, you can imbue some degree of semi-autonomy in the weapon to go after the target and, and, and protect the person who fired the weapon. That's the whole idea. So this is, this is disturbing subject for many people because no one likes the idea of war who does except, you know, Narcissists and patho you know pathological killers. So let's go from there. That stipulating no one wants a war, but when you engage in a war, the goal goal is to end it with minimal damage to both sides. Minimal, particularly your side, but you also want precision on the other side. So summarize for everybody how you sort of framed this. I thought it was a great, great frame. And I, yeah, I'll put the link up for people so they can read the whole thing. Well, first of all, thanks, Mark, for the kind words about the uh, paper. Uh, this is something I've been nurturing for a long time. I was talking about this a good 10 years ago, and I was uh, gratified to have the opportunity to put this into print uh, within the past year or so. But let me begin here. 
what drew me into this uh, uh, series of reflections was reading a 2012 report by uh, 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 Human Rights Watch uh, that was a, an extensive study uh, culminating in a call for a complete ban on autonomous weapons. I remember reading that and saying to myself, well, first of all, this is just politically naive in the extreme. Uh, none of the major uh, players in this space is ever going to agree to that. And also the quality of the argumentation in the, uh, for this, for the ban was just wretched. Let me just very briefly summarize the core argument that they gave, the core philosophical argument that they gave. Uh, it was simply this. Morality is, uh, or excuse me, emotions are necessary for morality. Robots can't be emotional. Therefore, robots can't be moral. Therefore, we should ban all autonomous weapons systems. So I'm a philosopher. I spent a lot of my life reading the distinguished 18th century uh, German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, uh, one of the most important moral philosophers in the Western philosophical tradition, who was famous for arguing that emotion should never play a role in moral judgment. He thought that whether it were positive emotions or negative emotions, they clouded the reason and therefore had no place in uh, moral decision making. Take the second premise, uh, premise, robots can't have emotions. Well, as I say about so many of the questions in this space, that's not a matter of principle. There's no a priori argument you can give for that. Uh, that's an empirical question. We just turn the engineers loose and see what they can accomplish, uh, being the creative people that we are. But anyway, I was just appalled by the wretchedness of the uh, argument. But nonetheless, that report was impactful because two years later, uh, together with a number of other NGOs, uh, 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 Human Rights Watch uh, uh, began uh, convening uh, every year in Geneva under UN auspices uh, meetings uh, about whether or not there should be a total ban on autonomous weapons. And as I said, I knew from the beginning that that wasn't going to go anywhere. Uh, and when those meetings began, that's exactly what the US and Russia and China and all the other major players said. Uh, so they spent two or three years pointlessly arguing about an impossible goal. Uh, then they shifted the argument. They said, well, maybe we should uh, call for a ban not on all autonomous weapons, but only on offensive autonomous weapons, but not defensive autonomous weapons. <laughs> well, that's also uh, a silly notion because yeah. it assumes that there's some crystal clear distinction between an offensive and a defensive weapons uh, system, which of course there isn't. Right. So it's, it's like, it's self-evident. I mean, yeah. a, a missile to shoot down an incoming missile is still a missile. That's exactly, that's exactly right. Just like the Russians in desperation now are using their anti-aircraft missiles uh, to attack ground. Uh, of course, because they can be repurposed. Of course they can. Course. But the, in fact, the, you know, I, I want to beat to death your, your first moral, your first objection to a, 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 an inherently flawed philosophical principle that Kant wrote, wrote about, thought about. But people should know, is it to state that motion is essential to a moral decision, ethical decision. One of the first things that any parent teaches any child, any, any counselor teaches anybody, is that when you are angry, when you're offended, when you're angry, that's the time to count to three, take a breath, because you're going to react emotionally instead of 
not just rationally, but ethically, because your emotions will take over what you know better not to do. I mean, it's so prima facie obvious that that first statement in that logic chain that they constructed violates what we've know from just, you don't have to be a philosopher. You just know this. I mean, some points of philosophy are really arcane and fascinating because they just prove what we know inherently, but you still need to tease it out. Others are prima facie. Anyway, I, I digress. The fact that that took hold is, is I blame I blame Terminator. That's why I started with Terminator. The, the science fictionization of these things has contaminated people's thinking. But carry on. I'm I, I just it's so offensive when you read this stuff. It's so intellectually vapid that it's it's hard to contain to contain a, a reaction to say, stop it. Yeah, it took over the UN and wasted a decade. But go ahead. Well, anyway, as I say, they shifted ground and they started arguing for a ban on offensive autonomous weapons. That was beaten back. And then they uh, retreated to calling for uh, meaningful human control over <laughs> uh, uh, autonomous weapons system. Yeah. And once again, they just stumbled into this conceptual morass. I mean, what does meaningful amount to uh, here? And so they spent more years arguing about that uh, fruitlessly. So step back from that. I look at that and I say in the paper, this is a decade wasted. Uh, arguing about something that was never going to happen, when in fact we were seeing the ever more rapid proliferation of different kinds of autonomous weapons, and we desperately need to norm that space in some way. We desperately need to get some kind of norms uh, governing autonomous, uh, uh, autonomous weapons. So the question is, what should they have been arguing about instead? Right. And this is the main positive suggestion that I make in the paper, and it is this. Going back decades, there has been in the international law of armed conflict in the form of what's called Article 36, Protocol 1 to the Geneva Conventions, a stipulation agreed to by virtually every nation around the world, a stipulation, this is required by international law, black letter law, a stipulation that there must be a review process through which you make a decision about any new weapons system, make a decision about whether or not it fully conforms to the international law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. That's been on the books for decades. My suggestion is that if you wanna deal with in a politically practical way, you take advantage of the fact that that's settled law and you go back and you revisit that provision and you ask, what do we need to do to tune it up to deal with the somewhat novel challenges of full autonomy in weapons systems? Now, we could spend a lot of time arguing about the details, and there are lots of interesting questions about how well that article has been working, about what more would be required to adapt it to this right. new space of autonomous <clears throat> weapons. But again, the point is, this is already settled law. We don't have to write new law here. We just need to tweak the law that's already uh, uh, there. Well, in fact, take it one step further, because I think in the real world, practicality does matter. So uh, raising idealized goals that are impossible to achieve in the normal course of human affairs is a feckless waste of time. You can write no novels about this and make science fiction, but in the real world, 
your point is exactly right. You have to begin to think about what your ultimate goal is and how you can get there. This is pretty obvious. It's business advice too. I mean, it's not just moral advice. You pick a your goal. What's my path? In fact, I would take it one step further. I, I, I wouldn't even propose first to wonder about how do I tweak an existing agreed to law or convention, but rather to first ask the question, how does that law and convention apply to this class of weapon? Because just the mere act of exploring that right. almost will certainly illuminate, first, that it is relevant, and secondly, that will illuminate the answer to the question, do I have to tweak anything? Because it scares people, as you know, to tell them that they have to either add a law or tweak a law, but it doesn't frighten people quite as much to say, hey, we have a law, we agree to this. How does that apply here? I suspect an awful lot of what people are worried about is fully covered by the concepts of that rule. I suspect. I don't know it well enough, but, but maybe my guess, because it's a pretty general proposition that you have to have a process to consider the consequence of taking an action. That's, I mean, that's a big give by itself for everybody to agree to, because you can you can disagree about whether they're implementing the process, the efficacy of the law. You can disagree about their assumptions in doing the process, but at least they've started from an agreement that we should consider this. This is, a, this is, a, this is a, I think that's an extraordinarily important contribution. So question, is anybody taking it to heart? Is there action going on this front? Before we get to the weapons themselves, is there any any action? Well, I haven't heard much uh, by way of this now being a focus of these conversations at the UN. But what has happened in the past few years is we're seeing a an uptick in the scholarship around the applicability of Article 36. Well, that's good. Weapons. So uh, to come back to a point you just made or a question you raised a moment ago, I think all of us who are thinking about this are in agreement that conceptually, Article 36 contains everything that is needed. But as you yourself said, there's also the process, the implementation. And that's what the literature is focusing on now. What can we do to set up processes and protocols that will make it more likely that the nations who have already said yes to this will, in fact, apply that structure in a meaningful way to uh, autonomous uh, weapons. So here's an anecdote that caught my somebody caught my attention a few weeks ago. Uh, when you t- think about questions of practicality, and you know, you know, I said I'm a perennial cynic. I'm always the one who said <laughs> well, lots of lots of lots of nations are going to cheat, and they aren't. Yeah. Gee, what a shock. I can't imagine that that would happen. (laughs) And that's a wrap for part one of this two-part episode. In part two, Don and I will continue our discussion, diving deeper into the the relevance of what's going on right now in the war in Ukraine, and also explore the question of whether artificial intelligence is inevitably taking us onto a track of machines that are self-aware, or whether they will in fact soon think. As always, if you're enjoying the episodes, please spend a few minutes to give us a rating. And until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. <laughs>